Hello and welcome. I'm Claire Warren, editor of Windpower Monthly, and in this edition of the Windpower podcast, I'm taking a look at some of the key challenges facing the industry. At the end of last month, thousands of industry professionals descended on Copenhagen for the Wind Europe annual event, and I took the opportunity to talk to some of them about what's keeping them awake at night. Experts from Frugro, Rysdale Energy, Res, Statcraft, Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners and Gazelle Windpower shared their thoughts on what the wind industry needs in order to thrive. One of their key concerns was how, or whether, we're going to hit the ambitious growth targets set by national governments. On the Monday before the event, for instance, nine European heads of state and government, their energy ministers and European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen met in Belgium to agree a new combined target of 120 gigawatts of North Sea offshore wind by 2030 and 300 gigawatts by 2050. Achieving that needs a clear investment signal, as my first guest, Alexandra Flotra, who heads up offshore wind research at Rystad Energy, pointed out. I think there has been a race to the bottom in terms of cost and prices for offshore wind in the past. And wind industry has shown that it's cost competitive, especially on offshore wind in, in recent years. You know, we've seen this kind of very rapid cost reduction driven by the bigger turbine sizes. But that's now also becoming a challenge for the industry. Right now, a lot of people are calling for societies to basically reflect or see the value that, let's say, European offshore wind is giving to Europe. So, yeah, I think there's something in the market dynamic where prices need to also reflect the value of the new power generation that's coming online. There needs to be margins being earned across the board for developers, for the suppliers, for the service providers. And right now, we don't see that. We do have some you know, carbon tax and, and so forth that are balancing the playing field a little bit. But I think there has to be some kind of acknowledgement that the industry needs to make money. What we've especially seen on, let's say, auctions is that you know, acreage for offshore wind has been going through the roof in terms of cost per square kilometer or for, per megawatt. We've seen offtake uh, agreements being kind of continuously on a lower and lower basis. Uh, we see CFD uh, awards in the UK coming down below onshore wind. So it is being pushed to a level where it's not sustainable for the industry. Of course, it's good with these ambitions to push the industry to continue on this path, but it's a little bit difficult for suppliers to do this in a low margin, high inflation environment where the the sizes change so quickly. If you don't know whether or not you're going to be relevant in the next five, ten years, will you then make a multi-hundred million dollar investment into a new facility? So if, if European policymakers want to have a European supply, they need to kind of address that through subsidies, through beneficial tax regimes, some kind of policy that will spur new investments. Right now, it's a little bit about, you know, choosing, I think, between, you know, whether or not to have a European supply or reaching their targets, because it's quite hard to do both at this point in time. So, yes, I think there is policy that's needed to to support that. Last year, according to Wind Europe, cost pressures and regulatory uncertainty drove investments in new wind farms in Europe to a 13-year low. Developers invested 17 billion euros in new wind farms, the lowest total since 2009, and less than half the 41 billion invested in 2021, prompting Wind Europe to warn that if investor confidence is not quickly restored, the wind power sector will struggle to help meet Europe's climate and energy targets. For Matilda Afzalius, CEO of Res in the Nordics, permitting is a key issue affecting the industry and one that has a direct impact on the financial viability of wind farms. A sense of urgency is needed, she says, if the industry is to thrive. We can 
and must get things done a lot faster. The major hurdles that we face is the permit times, access to grid, and that is something where the governments can actually play a big part because, you know, putting resources in the permitting authorities, helping out, setting standards, you can shorten those times. And we see that wind is the quickest source of energy that can be built. You know, you, you can do the permit time in a couple of years and then you have a year in construction for like a 25 turbine wind farm and that can provide power to, you know, villages and cities of 30,000 of people. Wind is quick if you compare to others. So permit time is definitely a place where the governments really can play a big role. I think there is a survey across Europe saying that Sweden has the second longest permit time. We're looking at seven to eight years for a normal project now. In Norway, it used to be shorter, but Norway sort of been on pause for onshore wind. So now they're stronger on offshore. Finland, I think we're looking at sort of five-ish years, a bit shorter than Sweden, but it's sort of still too long. It could be done in two. And still keeping the good governance, obviously, because we don't want to have fast track, not doing the right public hearings and iterations with authorities and all the service that we need to do because we should build wind in a good place. We see that sort of long permitting time and, and difficulties to access grid is keeping the pace down, of course, not just because there's a lot of projects in permitting, but also because developers are hesitant to come in. Because, of course, if you're not a solid company with a strong financial position, it's quite expensive to have an organization going to wait for that permit to be released. You know, it takes a long time before you get your money back on a wind development investment. I think what the wind industry needs to thrive properly is to to have society have a sense of urgency that we need to have a true change in the electricity market, in the power market. So that sense of urgency with governments, with society and people, neighbours, because the industry is here. We have the technologies and we have the industry really ready. But coming back to sort of permit times, grid availability and all of that, my absolutely firm impression is that to get that shift, we need to have a sense of urgency because it can be done. We've seen that before in other markets and we need it in energy now. Tom Walker, head of onshore wind at Statcraft in the UK, agrees that permitting is an issue. A lot of Statcraft sites are in Scotland where, he says, there is actually quite a good regime for permitting. Nevertheless, on average, it can take the company three to four years to get an application through. That's nothing, however, when compared to the time it takes to get a grid connection. I think the first thing to say is that we are in a really positive place. We've done a heck of a lot as an industry over the last 15 years. I think read yesterday, I think we're up to kind of 250 gigawatts across Europe of installed capacity in the wind sector. But in order to get to the targets and achieve what we need to, there's still a, a long way to go. For me, focusing on the UK, it's not just on how do we get projects through. I think a lot of our sites are up in Scotland, where I think we actually have quite a good regime for permitting. And thing to look at is time scales. So from submitting an application, usually that can take three to four years now to get that through the system, which is obviously a very long time and technology and things move on in that time. So I think that improving the timelines to get your permits would be very important rather than just focusing on, I guess, making the process more simplified. A lot of our projects, they will get permits, but then there will be a a long gap between when we can actually build the projects and connect to the grid. I'm focused on the UK, and it's definitely a problem there, but it seems to be wider than that. 
We're seeing connection dates now that we're getting back for projects that we are developing actively now for kind of 2035. And I've even heard some developers going beyond that. So we're looking at dates 10, 15 years in the future. The average time from a very start of a onshore wind development in the UK to getting it operational is around seven to eight years. So 12 to 15 years for a grid connection date, that's going to cause some problems, particularly when we've got kind of targets that we've got to hit sooner than that. Grids and permitting have long been challenges for green energy, but they're not the only issues holding up the wind industry. Ever-increasing turbine sizes might help bring down the levelised cost of offshore wind, as Rysed Energy's Flotra referred to earlier, but it also creates challenges for the OEMs, whose products may have limited lifespans and can create a chicken-and-egg situation whereby turbine manufacturers need firm orders in order to invest in new technology, while the developers delay their investment decisions because they're waiting to see what the OEMs do next, as Flotra says. Everyone wants to succeed. They want to move towards the targets. I think it's really great to see that at this conference, compared to conferences last year, it's more about problem solving. It's more about how do we get there rather than new targets, new ambitions. But who's going to do it first? The component suppliers and the ones that want to expand their facilities, they are pointing to the developers saying they need projects. But the project developers are still kind of on the edge, not knowing how well these components, these services will be supplied. So there's still this this kind of wait-and-see game going on, and maybe some policies needed just to get that final push for the industry to really start rolling. For the turbine OEMs, where there is definitely a competition about being the biggest, being the largest in the market, and if you have the largest turbine in the market, you will be preferred by the developers. That creates this kind of risk profile in the market, where it may also kind of delay final investment decisions for new expansions. Yeah, put, put some of these targets at risk. We see uh, developers opening up in their app applications for turbines far out in the 20 megawatt, 20 to 30 megawatt range. So definitely become more imaginative, but that also means that it, it is a wait and see. They don't want to make that decision before they know what's available to them. That's the big issue right now. Developers are a little bit on the fence waiting to see what the next OEM will do in terms of this race of, of larger turbines, while the OEMs are saying, well, we need firm orders to make these expansions. It's clear that the industry, if it could, land at a standard size where we say, well, we'll we'll pause here for five years to make that industrialization, to make that scale happening, that would be great. But this is a free and open market, and it's in kind of a market imperfection, if you will. My next guest points to another issue that is delaying orders for the turbine manufacturers, and that's a lack of tenders. Addressing that, he says, will require a less risk-adverse approach from European governments. I'm Joachim Kofut. I am a manager in the Global Fund Manager uh, Copenhagen Infrastructure Co- Partners, or CIP. I head up our public affairs activities across Europe. Basically, I think what we've seen over the past four or five years, so, or maybe even over the last couple of months, has been that political targets have been increased. So there's indeed a political motivation and a willingness to actually succeed in the green transition. I think if you just look to how we are on the trajectory to actually reach our targets, we're not on track. And so, so what we would actually need as an industry is, is actually some projects materialized. We need some tenders out there. Today, the supply chain is scaling down, and that's, of course, because we as a developer are not putting in the orders. Don't get me wrong here. We would like to put in the orders at the, at the OEMs, but, but we also need some projects. We can only put those orders if we have the projects out there. In 2022 in Europe, I think if you look at the numbers, only around 15 or 16 gigawatt of capacity in wind have actually been installed. 
and only a fraction of that, around two or three gigawatts, was an offshore wind. And if you look to the numbers to be in the trajectory to reach the targets, either the Paris ECO targets or the Repo EU targets, we need to install above 30 gigawatts a year in Europe. So how in the world are we going to reset if we don't do things differently? We need to work together. Governments need to, to not be that risk averse that they have been in the past. And they need to leave some risk to the developer side, potentially leave some seabed areas for the developer to actually innovate upon, do things differently, tweak how many turbines that can be, or potentially build energy islands, offshore power tracks, stuff like that. So we, we think differently and speed things up. Right now, we have multiple areas in, in Europe that we're looking for for onshore projects, both in solar and, and on wind. We don't have the ex- exclusivity yet, so we cannot put the orders. We don't have the permits, so we cannot necessarily put the orders to the supply chain. So there's this sort of uh, gridlock that we are in between having projects, receiving the permits, working with the environment, environmental impact that we do across the industry. And it's about coming or transforming these very, very high political ambitions and targets that we've seen. And that's, of course, great that we have these ambitions. But we need to transform that into some actual projects materializing. I think there is some sort of a mismatch between the political targets and the political willingness, which is there, and the traditional way of doing things in the administration. Getting back to my point on doing things differently, I think it's minimizing that gap of the political aspirations, motivation, whatever it is, to the actual doing things in practice at a government agency level or administration level. We cannot optimize the business case from the state to the single euro cent. If we do that and do it as we've done the past 20 years, we will not get things done. I think it's key here to understand that all the OEMs, for instance, the turbine manufacturers, or maybe even also the electrolyzer manufacturers in in Europe, are not scaling up as they should to actually uh, make sure that we uh, keep on track. I think there's several factors to that. And I've, of course, spent quite a lot of time on on putting some tenders out there so we can actually, as a developer, put the orders. But there might also be a, a trend on changing industrial politics that we are not talking enough about. So take the IRA in the US, for instance. Like right now in CIP, we are sort of moving investment people to Texas and Louisiana. And I know, especially for electrolyzer manufacturing, they're moving as well. And that will, of course, have some repercussions on how the wind industry and supply chain is affected in Europe. A lot of that green electricity that we're going to build in Europe is going to be for green fuels, power tracks. And if the business case for building power tracks in Europe is not viable, or at least better in the US or elsewhere, then the investments of power tracks in Europe is at least or at best going to be delayed. One segment of the industry that has been garnering a lot of attention in recent months is floating offshore wind. The potential is enormous, as we discussed in a previous Wind Power podcast. But as John Salazar, founder and CEO of Gazelle Wind Power, points out, floating brings a whole new set of challenges. We think about wind turbines of 15 megawatt or more. These can be almost as tall as the Eiffel Tower. These can be structures um, from the surface level of the sea to the tip of the blade up to almost 300 meters. So you can imagine the scale of where we are trying to deliver here. These are floating skyscrapers and this requires the involvement of very clever people, very experienced people from adjacent industries. If we look at what is required, from an infrastructure point of view, we can see the draft of the ports, we can see the spaces where these type of solutions need to be stored too. For these very large wind turbines, we need also economies of scale, we need serial production, and all this goes hand by hand with technologies that can be standardized and that can help to solve the supply chain and the infrastructure issue. If we can, for example, reduce the draft that is required in order to 
assemble and tow a floating offshore wind turbine from 14, 15, 16 meters draft, reduce it to 7 meters draft, 5 meters draft, then we can enable further local supply chains. If we can also follow shipbuilding approaches where we can serially produce, where we can reduce the time of assembly, where we can reduce the time of manufacturing, we will also be tapping into the potential of those local supply chains, boosting local economies, local employment, and all this will further accelerate. It is very important that we get megawatts, gigawatts delivered at scale. That will create a momentum. And from my point of view, it is also very important that new innovations come to the industry so we can achieve floating also wind affordable at scale. So new paradigm shifts, innovation in mooring systems, for example, innovation in the way we are approaching the industrialization phase of, of this industry. How can we reduce assembly times, manufacturing times? How can we create the Henry Ford assembly line? That will be critical in order to bring that levelized cost of electricity down and enable floating offshore wind at scale at the pace that the world and the industry needs. If we don't introduce new generation technologies, new innovations into this market, then we will require to do massive investments from an infrastructure and poor point of view. And there will be many players, many actors that will not be part of all this. For us, it's very important to enable all those local supply chains to be part then of a larger regional supply chain. We need everyone to take part on this because we need to add with that sense of urgency. There is at least one key challenge that has followed the wind power industry that is unlikely to have much of an impact on floating wind. I'll leave it to Coford of CIP to tell you what it is. I think over the past five, ten years, we have, in China industry, have been challenged about this nimbyism, so not in my backyard, right? And that, of course, goes to onshore mainly, but basically also for traditional offshore wind, so close to shore, we can actually see them from people's uh, summer houses, summer cottages. But I think since the cost of offshore wind has actually come fairly down, we can actually manage and building uh, offshore wind far, far, far away from shore, and potentially also building energy islands where we have a high amount of capacity, 10 plus gigawatt of actually connected to an an artificial island out there. That's going to be the future, and that's how the the North Sea and potentially also the Baltic Sea is going to work. That's the key, because when you get out in the ocean, maybe beyond 20, 25 kilometers, and the current size of the turbines that we have today, you cannot see them from shore. May be able to see a blink of uh, a shed of light during nighttime in the horizon, but nothing more than that. You won't have these tall skyscraper-like towers that you can see. So when you get beyond that threshold, then you won't have that nimbyism. Then basically we just have a cable or a pipeline to show with hydrogen electricity that we will not see from your summer cottage. Over the course of this podcast, we've talked about a variety of regulatory and technology-related issues, but there's another key element that is crucial to the future of the industry, the current size of the wind power workforce. As my final guest points out, we'll need good people to meet the ambitious growth targets, and lots of them. I'm Erik Jan Bijvank. I'm the Regional Director for Europe and Africa for Fugro. So what we need to make sure is that we have the right resources to be able to fulfill all the demands of the market. The offshore wind market has been very buoyant over the last couple of years, growing tremendously, which puts a lot of strain on the uh, supply chain to deliver. So to be able to have the resources is both the opportunity and the biggest challenge for the short term. The people who deliver the work are crucial to what we do. And yes, we're developing a lot of technology to be able to perform the work as well, but it will never do without the human intellect and the human experience to make sure that we can really create the value that we need to create. 
It is estimated that by 2030, the uh, European industry needs around 250,000 employees to fulfill the promises that we've been asked to uh, fulfill. Coming from 80,000, that is a tremendous step up. I believe some of them will come from other industries because the renewables industry is a very attractive place to have a career. I also believe we'll be, uh, be getting people straight out of school and we're doing that right now. Making sure that we're an attractive starting company or starting industry for a lever of academics is very important and we'll also probably be tapping into some uh, less likely areas which we've also done in the past. It's interesting to see how the European leaders have really upped the challenge for the industry and for the whole society to really create an accelerated schedule and an elevated capacity in a relatively short term. And that is really setting the bar very high. So on the one hand, that's very helpful because we will be able to invest on the back of that sort of long-term demand. And that is very important. What is equally important is that we can deliver on that, both from the regulatory point of view, giving access to all that work that we're going to be doing, but also from a performance point of view, because this is going to take investment in equipment, in people, in ways of working. It is really, really upping the ante. Thank you for listening to the WinPower podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode looking at the issues affecting the industry today.